Well, good evening. Uh, it's good to see you here this evening, um, and welcome to this public lecture by the Department of Media and Communications. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Sonia Livingstone, I'm the head of the department, uh, and I'm very pleased today to uh, announce a lecture on the subject, Television Beyond Frontiers, Reflections on Public Service Broadcasting in a Digital Age. So our speaker, as you can see both here and here, uh, is uh, Caroline Powell. She's the head of the Institute for Broadband Technologies um, and Studies on Media, Information and Communications at the Free University of Brussels. Uh, she was appointed Media Commissioner by the Flemish Government for the Public Service Broadcaster VRT, and she lectures on national and European media and communication policies. Her book, which came out last year, it's called Rethinking European Media and Communication Policy, but she tells me she's uh, finished rethinking and she's already on to the next book, so I don't know what comes after rethinking, but uh, there will be um, a further book. So Caroline's going to talk for um, about uh, 50 minutes, I think, and then our respondent uh, is um, Dr. Damien Tambini, who is uh, sitting here so that he can see the slides, but will um, uh, come up and be respondent. So, um, Dr. Tambini, as um, again many here will know, is a senior lecturer in the department and convener of our MSc in Media and Communication Governance. He's also an associate fellow at the Institute of Public Policy Research and at the Oxford Internet Institute, and he serves on the advisory groups of the Oxford Media Convention and POLIS. And his book on media self-regulation codifying cyberspace was published um, in 2008. So on a, a day when we're thinking about media policy, I just thought I'd also take the opportunity to announce the Media Policy Project, which is uh, now established in the Department of Media and Communication, um, and is an enterprise to put uh, academic research in dialogue with policymakers in order to um, contribute to the huge challenges that are facing the media and communication sector, uh, including issues of public service broadcasting, the subject of tonight's lecture, also issues of extending broadband access, internet governance, regulation of local television, and more. And we are, I think, uh, many of us in different ways within the department and beyond are debating these issues at a time of political change, um, significant financial uh, constraints, and of course very rapid technological and social change. So it's um, partly in that context that we're very pleased to welcome uh, Professor Caroline Powell to speak to us today, and um, I ask you to welcome her to the podium. So, good evening, uh, dear distinguished members of the audience, dear students, I think there are also some students here. I would first of all want to thank the London School of Economics, the Department of Media and Communications, and more specifically Professor Mansell, Professor Livingstone, and as well as Professor Tambini, for giving me the opportunity to explore some ideas and thoughts on the transitions public service broadcasting went through and to suggest some ways of repositioning the public service institution in the digital era. I am, of course, very much honored to speak at such a prestigious place at LS as LSE, and even though I think, or I would qualify my presence here today as too much of an honor, I will for sure cherish this moment as an important momentum in my academic life. 
and I'm also glad to see some friends from Brussels. In this lecture, I foresee three parts. In a first uh, introductory, um, sorry, I'm going to see my own slides, this can be useful. Uh, in this first introductory part, I would like to make some preliminary remarks about the bias we have conceptually, theoretically, as well as empirically when discussing public service broadcasting. This part should also do justice to the empirical diversity of the European public service broadcasting landscape. Much too often, indeed, we think public service broadcasting reality as something semantically and empirically quite homogeneous, whereas the concept itself might be quite fuzzy, covering up for many possible interpretations and just as many national or regional implementations. To say it quite bluntly, especially considering the country and the town, town I'm in right now, there is more to public service broadcasting than the BBC model. Or, to quote Edgar Morin, public service broadcasting is for sure a UNITAS complex. Secondly, I will give an overview of a chronology I think useful to distinguish several periods in the history of public service broadcasting. I will distinguish uh, three periods, being the first television within frontiers, the second television without frontiers, and the third television beyond frontiers. To some extent, these periods may overlap each other and therefore be questionable in their categorization. Neither is there a teleological or linear vision behind these periods. I would, however, argue that the, area, the era of public service broadcasting or public service media is still to come. For systematic reasons, I will, in each period, along the distinctions made by Bakhwati, talk about the I-I and I-dynamics, being the complex interplay in each period of IDs, these are the frames of thoughts in which events occur and decisions are made, the institutions, these are the legal frameworks and the institutions shaping them in a mutual and interdependent relationship, and third, the interests at stake in each and every period. The influence of the European Union at every state, stage, be it implicit or explicit, will be touched upon. I will also draw on the way the ideas were then implemented and to what outcomes and possibly dysfunctions they eventually led, giving way to the next period. A certain path dependency in public service broadcasting history can indeed be discerned. Finally, by way of conclusion, we will come to some policy recommendations as well as provide some input for public service media thinking based on what I call a slow movement philosophy. So let me first come to the preliminary remarks. A first remark concerns the television bias when we study or talk about public service broadcasting. Most studies and reflections indeed tend to reduce public service broadcasting to television both theoretically and empirically. Yet, radio was and is as important to the mission of public service broadcasting as was television. I am moreover convinced that public service broadcasting organizations can hardly limit themselves to these media in the near future. Even if some stakeholders want public service broadcasting to stick to radio and television, a debate which is 
regularly present in Flanders today, where the publishers want the public service broadcasting organizations not to venture too much on the internet, cross-mediality is a conditio sine qua non for the future of public service media. Being present on the internet, in social media and on mobile applications should indeed be a core public service broadcasting mission and each medium should be used according to its own logic in a strategic way and not solely as a complement to existing radio and TV programs. Otherwise, public service media lose their relevance to the public, especially the younger generations. We must indeed accept that television is no longer the point of references, reference it once was. Our visions of the world, our cultures and our opinions do not necessarily derive from television anymore. We live in a multimedia society, some call it the mosaic society, with its fragmentation of publics, medias and IDs. Secondly, we should at all times be aware of the normative nature of the debate over the state's roles in the audiovisual sector. Public broadcasting or public media is a societal choice and the result of a political vision on society. It is not an answer and has never done so to any law of nature. Nevertheless, and this is a third point, we must avoid thinking in terms of dichotomies and be aware of false arguments. The choice between the market and the state intervention has never been imposed in a pure way in the past, nor will it be imposed in a pure way in the near future. The two possibilities, state and market, never exist in a pure state, and it is appropriate to combine them rather than to oppose them. Similarly, we must avoid associating public broadcasting in a reductive fashion with everything that is good and private networks with everything that is bad or contemptible. Above all, we must, set aside, we mu we must put aside the idea that the mere existence of public broadcasting itself is in itself a guarantee that public service programs will be aired. Indeed, there is no direct unilinear link between such a legal status and its expression in terms of programming. Accordingly, the real question that arises is how to ensure that the largest number of public service programs sees the light of the day, whether on the public broadcasting network, private networks, the internet, or any other audiovisual transmission medium. In other words, we must create an environment that is conducive to the emergence and proliferation of public service programs with the public institution undoubtedly being an essential link in the chain, but not, or no longer anymore, the only one. Moreover, we should consider public service broadcasting as a usual suspect. If we focus on only one institution, there is indeed a risk, and here I quote René Bonnel, that in public broadcasting, as in other sectors, the interests of the institution will supersede those of its mandators, just as the glory of the church has always supplanted that of religion. A fourth point is that the ideas on public service broadcasting should be placed in the context of time and space. In a sense, there is no single public broadcaster. Rather, there are many public broadcasters, although the underlying philosophy is based essentially on the concept proposed by Lord Reed in the United Kingdom. 
making good programs popular and popular programs good. But governments then interpreted and implemented it as they saw fit. The result is a cultural diversity of public service media institutions that is and has always been contested but nevertheless recognized as an essential political objective by almost all states, at least the Western European ones. Public broadcasting, moreover, has a nostalgic air about it. We pretend it existed once, somewhere, in the pure state, although we don't know where. Or we regard it as an unachieved utopia that we hope will exist one day, somewhere, in the pure state. Perhaps the BBC, the mother beep, and the British audiovisual system best incarnate the idea of utopia achieved. Still, we must not forget that the countries in the north and the countries in the south have diverging ideas about the need for public broadcasting. Nor is there unanimity about public broadcasting in developing countries. Depending on the context, these countries may perceive public broadcasting as a vehicle for a monolithic political power that manipulates or oppresses rather than emancipates. It is also important to bear in mind that precious few people who lived through the era of the state monopoly advocate its return, since they believe they were poorly informed, if not manipulated, in the past. Ultimately, the idealized concept of public service is a Western notion, incarnated and defended in the northern countries, such as the Scandinavian countries, the UK, the Netherlands, Belgium and Canada, rather than in the countries of the south, Portugal and Greece, with France falling somewhere in between. The diversity of public service broadcasting reality in Europe needs some empirical evidence, as it is important to recognize that all public service broadcasting are equal, but some are more equal than others. For one, it is important to recognize that historical conditions for their creation may vary from one country to the other, as well as the legal and financial frameworks in which they operate. Once again, the UK condition is peculiar, as from very early on, the governments made the choice for a broadcasting duopoly with also pu some public service obligations imposed to the private competitors. It is therefore significant that the authors of the EU Green, Green Paper Television Without Frontiers, issued in 1984, refer to the UK situation to show that competition does not lead to a loss of quality per se, as the opponents of the European liberalization of television then fear. As Anthony Pregnell pointed out at the time, the drafters of the Green Paper most conveniently forgot that this is only the case because of a severe regulation of the private sector also, and because there is sufficient money available both in the market as with the state to finance both systems in a substantive way. Also, the strict separation of public money for the public broadcasting and private money for the private sector at the time guaranteed the quality of both private and public program output in the UK. Political support to public service broadcasting also varied throughout history, with regular crises in the relationship between both. For some authors and observers, this crisis is perhaps the most significant nowadays where, in current times of economic recession, budget cuts are imposed almost everywhere on the public service broadcasting 
and this in a general climate of public indifference, as Jo Bardoul noticed as far as the Dutch situation is concerned. The Dutch right-wing government indeed asked for more than 250 millions of euro of budget cuts without the public reacting, which, according to Bardoul, differs greatly from the fierce reactions of the public against the budget cuts in the cultural sector. Only this weekend, 100,000 people protested against these cuts. If historical, legal and political conditions vary, the same is true for the financial and organizational aspect of public service broadcasting in Europe, as well as their audience share. Of course, all are confronted with a fiercer competition than ever before. Due to digitization, this is what you see on the graph, the number of uh, channels available increased significantly, as can be seen here. The global audience shares of public service broadcasting more or less stabilizes around 30%. In, uh, from 2000 to 2009, you see more or less the same 30%. But differences, of course, occur between countries. Next graph. In the UK, in the UK because here you see the shares for television as well as radio, in the UK, BBC television market share is around 33%. In Italy, 42%, Flanders, 40%, whereas its Walloon counterpart only attracts 20% of the audience. In Denmark, it amounts to 28%. This is rather strange, because the overall budget, being uh, the mixed amount of public funds, license fees, and commercial incomes spent on Danish, Danish public service broadcasting per inhabitant, amounts to 89 euro which is very high compared to the 76 euro per inhabitant in the UK, 74 in Flanders, only 50 euro per inhabitant in the Netherlands, and even less so in Portugal, being 30 euro per inhabitant. When only considering the amount of public funding, many differences occur once more. Flanders can then only spend 48 euro per inhabitant, whereas on average, seven comparable PSBs would be able to spend more or less 69 euro. One should also take into account that with this money, the national public service broadcasting companies employ many different uh, amounts of people and offer radio and television channels in, in many varying numbers. For example, you see that the UK offers 15 television channels, whereas in Flanders, for example, we offer three television uh, channels. This empirical diversity once again proves public service broadcasting as being a unitas complex. It moreover illustrates that for 70 euro at average, people are given a lot, especially when considering the multitude of radio and television channels offered. And even if there is no such a thing as a free lunch, when adding an increasing amount of internet services and mobile applications, this 70 euro really boils down to a free lunch for every citizen, making the public service media indeed a universal service to the public and at least the cheapest diversified leisure offer one could think of. Of course, and now I come to my second part, this diversity does not prevent us from discerning some overall similarities and tendencies in the European history of public service broadcasting. 
To simplify somewhat, we can conceive of a history of public broadcasting that is, roughly speaking, divided into three periods. A first, the television within frontiers, which is actually about managing scarcity. Second, a television without frontiers, where managing choice becomes the main task. And a third period, television beyond frontiers, where managing abundance or too much becomes the main challenge. Confer Bhagwati, as I already said, I propose to identify the ideas, institutions, and interests at stake in each and every period. At no time or period, however, was the emergence of a wide range of genuine public service programs a given. Looking into this chronology, I think I would eventually describe it as a chronology of best intentions and ultimately as the boulevard of broken dreams. The first period extends from more or less the 20s to the end of the 70s. We could call this period television within frontiers, a period in which the main underlying task was to, main, to manage scarcity, a scarcity occurring at very different levels. In most European countries, this was the era of the public broadcasting monopoly. The reason cited, at least in Europe, was that the shortage of airwaves required public intervention to ensure that general, general interest objectives were attained. The position reflected the, the choice of a society where it was thought, at least in Europe and contrary to the United States, that the state was better equipped than the market to meet society's needs in terms of cultural policy, cohesion, etc. Moreover, such policies were couched in a rhetoric that stigmatized the private sector while regarding public broadcasting as sacrosanct. Of course, the overall underlying frame of thought, the ideas, were modernism, emancipation, and the true understanding of humanism. Also in this sense, the idea of scarcity occurred. As Nicholas Garnham describes very well in his excellent book, Emancipation, the Media and Modernity, and here I quote Garnham, the Enlightenment project was founded upon the limits of human reason and was therefore concerned with emancipation as an always partial project, not an achieved and total fact. The question was how, and if so, to what extent, could we emancipate ourselves from the limits that our animal natures and our social bonds placed upon us? It was really, as Garnham points out, a debate as to whether the good life was a pursuit of pleasure, and moral claims merely the pursuit of self-interest in disguise, or whether, on the contrary, we had moral obligations of a different or higher sort. It is therefore not surprising that laws reads to entertain inform and educate, or rather making the good popular and the popular good, summarizes the public service broadcasting mission of this period at its best. This idea is also rephrased by Graham Murdoch, and I quote, For many of its practitioners, however, public service broadcasting was also educational in the original Latin sense of leading out, opening up new horizons and experiences for those who would otherwise be denied them. They saw it as a classroom, a museum, a library, a concert hall without walls. They envisaged culture as a ladder which people would steadily climb, moving from the lowest range of packaged commercial entertainment to the highest ranks of consecrated cultural artifacts. The institutional framework of the time and the interests at stake 
were the nation states organizing the public service broadcasting on a purely national basis for reasons of national cohesion, culture and identity for their fellow citizens. Public service broadcasting, moreover, had a production, programming and distribution monopoly, with the absence of an independent and flourishing production industry as a consequence. No reference was made to the European level, nor to economics or consumers. This is not to say that European institutions were not already intervening in the broadcasting sector. The Court of Justice of the European Union, previously the European Court of Justice, had already, without any hesitation, declared that broadcasting, in spite of its monopoly organization, was an economic service. Intervention of the community institutions remained limited, however. This low-profile position, most importantly, uh, of the most importantly, the European Commission changed in 1984 with the drafting of the Television Without Frontiers Green Paper, when the discourse of liberalisation was taking ground in the field of broadcasting policy, and policymakers were looking after new services markets to further economic growth. The first error was indeed characterised by some ambivalencies. First, it is widely accepted that spectrum scarcity only served as an excuse for politicians feeling a need, at least in their opinion, to control mass media. Aside from political lip services, the public service broadcasting actually did serve some economic interests as well, if it only be to contribute to an emerging radio industry. Without content, sales of radio hardware devices could hardly be expected indeed. And although paternalism was accepted by all, a competition for ratings did occur. Many historical studies indeed show that seeking the broadest audience was the order of the day, if only to reach as many voters as possible. Programming, as well as management of public broadcasting, was part of a real policy to maximize political power. The result was politicization of public broadcasting management at all levels, and programming that serves the powers that be in a rather hegemonic fashion. Whereas entertainment was surely offered in significant numbers, even though with a different touch than today, luckily perhaps, educational content and information were indeed offered, but always with the aim of controlling and maximizing political power. In short, we may conclude that programs with a true public service vocation were probably as scarce as today and moreover due largely to the zeitgeist rather to, to, than to a general politi political will. On the other hand, Hughes puts forward that the Rethian ethos of paternalism resulted in worthy but ultimately dull programs which alienated sections of the audience with their refusal to recognize the demands of a culturally divided society. Murdoch agrees that public broadcasters took their project of emancipation, although valuable per se, too far and ended up excluding the audience they wanted to include in society. The advent of the second period, roughly speaking from the beginning of the 80s to the end of the 90s, can be coined as a television without frontiers period. The underlying mantra was now to create and manage choice through the liberalization of the broadcasting market and ultimately, after a period of serious market decline for the public service broadcaster, to enhance public service broadcasting efficiency along the lines of new public management.
With it came a policy serving the interests of the consumers and private companies more than these of public service broadcasters and citizens. The advent of the second period was thought to reveal the deficiencies of the policy adopted to that point. Although commentators cite politicization, bureaucratization, the innate slowness of public broadcasting, as well as a so-called lack of creativity, there was in truth only one fundamental reason for the crisis that broadcasting went through at the beginning of this period, namely its betrayal between brackets by the political class, be it right-wing or left-wing. The political class discovered that interests were just was served just as well, if not better, by a competitive system of private networks and it behaved accordingly. The trend was to postmodernism, which put an end to grand narratives and paternalism of all types and introduced the idea of individual choice and consumer sovereignty. Moreover, Europe had entered the neoliberal era, advocating in a technological determinist manner the imminent advent of the information society. The result was a new paradigm that considered the private sector almost sacrosanct, deeming it creative, efficient and innovative, at the expense of public broadcasting, whose real benefits we suddenly forgot. Policy was inspired by the twofold observation that new technologies, as for example cable and satellite, ended an era of spectrum scarcity and that market-led policies, the rollback of the state, were to be preferred over interventionist government policies. The choice for economic recipes based on consumer sovereignty and the idea that only individual consumer considerations would result in economic efficiency underlied the declining support for public broadcasting from a more ideological point of view. A system had to be built in which, quoting Leon Britton, the former British EU Commissioner for Competition and later for Trade, that the customer rather than the philosopher is king. Similar arguments against public uh, ownership and in favor of more freedom for the consumer were put forward by private broadcasters, of which some were not hesitant to doubt the special public value of public broadcaster services in comparison to their own offers, as this quote from Rupert Murdoch, not to be confounded with Graham Murdoch, quite explicitly illustrates. And here I quote, so I quote Rupert, for start, I have never heard a convincing definition of what public service television really is. And I'm suspicious of elites, including the British broadcasting elite, which argue for special privileges and favors because they are supposed to be in the public interest as a whole. Such special pleadings tend to produce a service which is run for the benefit of the people who provide it, rather than the viewers who watch it. My own view is that anybody who, within the law of the land, provides a service which the public wants at the price it can afford, is providing a public service. The crisis of state intervention and thus public broadcasting is, as Garnham illustrates, part of a wider political crisis and the loss of faith in status solution. The result was public broadcasting in crisis, never sure about what tomorrow would bring from the political, legal and financial point of view. It is clear that in this atmosphere of uncertainty, true public service programming again became rare. As a consequence of uncertainty, we saw the loss of portions of the public service market throughout Europe 
and we were faced with a vicious circle. No audience meant no subsidies, or else the audience was attracted to commercial programming aired by the public service broadcasting, which meant no justification for subsidies, for subsidies anymore. As such, public broadcasters ended up in a damn if they do, damn if they don't situation. This situation could have brought about the institution demise if politicians had not reverted to their previous positions, gradually giving some more leeway to public service broadcasters. In practice, though, this meant that public service broadcasters had to enter the era of new public management. As Richard Collins states quite accurately, by reorienting public bodies to the doctrines and practices of the private sector, new public management sought to address endemic public sector problems. New public management was meant to remedy inefficiency and lack of responsiveness to users, but for its critics, wrenched public bodies into a privatized stance and constructed downward accountability as a simple purchaser-provider relationship between unequals. Along new public management theories came the consultants, as was exemplified by some worthwhile but nevertheless formatted studies of the McKinsey's and Pricewaterhouse's of this world. A management culture was introduced into the desired and efficient lean public service broadcaster, which devoted most of their time to cost-saving initiatives, efficiency considerations, and they got caught in a process of commercialization. Public service broadcaster, broadcasters entered the era of contract agreements between the institution and the government, where in return for the realization of quantifiable key performance indicators, they were promised a state at distance regime, operational autonomy, and guaranteed financial means over a middle long term, if at least they met the performance indicators. Moreover, marketing strategies to attract audiences were introduced and merchandising units were created to marketize public service content in all possible ways. In such a content, context, it can eventually be very difficult to pro produce programs that truly embody a spirit of public service. Domestic policy features and interests gave rise to different regulatory situations, although privatization, as was for example the case in France with the privatization of number one public service broadcasting, TF1, liberalization and rethinking of public broadcasting organizations were at the core of most countries' reform processes. In addition, member states' policies were increasingly being influenced by the European Commission. By means of both sector-specific and horizontal policy domains like competition law, it turned broadcasting sector into a strategic domain of community action. Whereas in the beginning of this period the focus lay on liberalization and harmonization initiatives, more specifically through the Television Without Frontiers Directive and its complements harmonizing, for example, copyrights or fiscal measures, more industrial support mechanisms, such as a media program, largely underfinanced, could not live up to the increased demand for content. The European Union, and above all the Directorate responsible for competition under the impetus from the European Court of Justice, moreover increased the pressure on member states to spell out a clear mission for public broadcasting, to avoid mission creep, 
and to ensure that subsidies would not exceed what was strictly required to achieve the clearly defined and stated public service objectives. Overall, following issues received particular attention of the EU institutions. Member states needed to come up with a clearly defined public service mission. They should provide proportional budgeting and guarantee transparency and independent control. The last aspect covered the urge for clear and transparent accounting systems, distinguishing between all sources of mixed financing, something all, uh, not one uh, public service broadcasting has done so far, and the installation of independent regulatory authorities. Even though, with one or two exceptions, the European Court of Justice dismissed the accusation of unfair competition leveled by private networks at public broadcasters, it is certain as shown by the 1997 Green Paper on Convergence, that henceforth the European Commission, or for the European Commission, public service goals can be achieved just as well by the private sector as by the public sector. The increasing interference of the WTO in the, in the audiovisual domain at the expense of a then weak UNESCO reinforced the overall idea that the liberalized market can also serve interests of cultural diversity. The observation that next to sector-specific internal market policies, also horizontal policy domains such as competition policy applied to national broadcasting sectors was in itself a very difficult nut to crack for member states and public broadcasters. Competition law was not considered to be a valid tool to deal with public interest aspects of broadcasting policy. Moreover, the fact that competition rules were applicable to public service broadcasting once again highlighted that national sovereign policies in the field of broadcasting were no more. Member states eventually reacted, even though in a dispersed order, and politicians, mainly for reasons of opposition to the European Union intervention in an area that the member states considered their sole jurisdiction, succeeded to adopt the 1997 Amsterdam Protocol designed to preserve public broadcasting and guarantee its financing, at least on the European level. The Amsterdam Protocol was in line with an earlier discomfort of member states leading to the introduction of the Cultural Article 151 into the EC Treaty in 1992. It is worthwhile mentioning, however, that member states still refrain from evoking this clause just as much as they are afraid to use the clause on media pluralism written into the EU merger regulation. Public service interests are indeed paid lip service, whereas an economic rationale prevails. With governments reacting against Europe, they increasingly on the national level insisted on quality and distinctiveness of public broadcasters' programming on the one hand, where at the same time they forced the organizations to rely on commercial revenues and to live up to quantified rating targets on the other hand. Amidst this ambivalency, public service broadcasting had ultimately grown into efficient entrepreneurs, safeguarding large market shares. In this context, it looks fair, however, to question once again whether a strong market position of public broadcasters can be defended if public broadcasters' renaissance is based on a strategy that has little to do with realizing public service objectives, but everything with satisfying the individual needs and desires of His Majesty the viewer. 
Whereas during monopoly, paternalism and politicization prevented public service objectives from being realized, market-oriented strategies were responsible for the same deficit after the liberalization. The third period, gradually starting from 2000 onwards, can be coined as a television beyond frontiers. It is a period characterized by aspects of late modernity on the one hand, convergence and consequently a multi-stakeholder media environment on the other hand. Hybridization looks like a common denominator for the upcoming era, adding to the already existing ambivalency and complexity of the media environment. The great challenge of the upcoming era therefore seems to manage abundance. The success of social media and open source utopias meant the end of the vertical media model. Late modernity trends and the advent of user-generated content, sometimes coined as the wisdom of the crowds, which is of course a very doubtful metaphor per se, leads to the overall questioning of a once authoritative institutions such as universities, companies, doctors, scientific experts, and so on. Companies as Google or YouTube drive on the content of others and moreover have introduced the misleading idea of a media economy based on a free model. This free model is in turn reinforced by cultural practices such as legal or illegal downloading. It will indeed be increasingly difficult to convince young generations that there is actually no such a thing as a free lunch. And even if this idea is erroneous, the free model is no longer the public service media unique selling proposition. Shaky business models are reality for all traditional media players alike, confronted with an ever-increasing inter- and intramedia competition and a subsequent questioning of who is actually delivering a public value and who will be paying for that. The upcoming era is indeed one in which public broadcasters deliver public media services, but also other public institutions such as museums, libraries, and so on, as well as private undertakings. The project of public service broadcasting is thus no longer monopolized by public broadcasting organizations. Furthermore, convergence, the buzzword of the 80s and the 90s, gradually becomes a reality from the end of the 90s onwards. As a result, the boundaries between previously distinct sector sectors like broadcasting, telecommunication and ICT are now definitely, blur definitely blurring on different levels. Convergence indeed not only apparent at the level of content, but also at the level of platforms or consumer interfaces. Whereas the liberalization of the second period resulted in the emergence of rather predictable markets in which one public broadcaster, even though it had different channels, competed with one or three private broadcasters, the current media market is a market where everybody competes with each other for the same audiences. Next to public broadcasters, other actors are increasingly engaging in public service media delivery. Libraries, museums, theaters, and so on, offer online content, for example, virtual exhibitions, streaming of concerts, and so on. But increasingly, possibilities to launch new channels or services prompt also private undertakings to offer public media services. 
Hence the advent of history channels, heritage channels, documentary channels launched by private entrepreneurs, sometimes in a public-private partnership rela uh, relationship. It comes as no surprise that in such a context of abundance, some authors and politicians alike argue that there is no legitimate reason to uphold public broadcasters' position in the 21st century. Some indeed stress that because of technological and economic changes, public broadcasting organizations have become a paradox of our time. Other question whether there is a genuine public value attached to public broadcaster programs in an era of nearly unlimited consumer choice. Resonating the market failure argument, opponents of public service media argue they should be restricted to core niche tasks at the least. And although public and private broadcasters might share similar interests, for example in their battle against the YouTubes and the Googles or to the distributors of this world, the latter attack public media institutions once again, especially when they enter the new media markets. Public broadcasting activities in new, new media markets are, often because of their success, a thorn in the flesh of private broadcasters indeed, and importantly, and increasingly so, of the publishing sector filing complaints to the European Court and Commission. At the regulatory level, Policymakers experience the difficulties of regulating public service broadcasting in this complex media ecology. In the Netherlands, the Dutch government delivered a document focused on functions which, if it had been implemented, would have meant, would have meant a marginalization of public service media to their core niche tasks. In the UK, the quest for appropriate regulatory instruments led to the adoption of the public value test as it was first advanced in the 2004 BBC document Building Public Value. As you know far better than myself, this public value test is indeed to be complemented with a market impact assessment test delivered by Ofcom. It is fair to say that the British ID found its way to the European Union who thinks the public value test and the market impact assessment test very good ideas to become common best practice when regulating the upcoming new media market competition. In the meanwhile, the public value test and the market impact assessment practice has led to the Treistufen test in Germany and has also been explored in other cases. Needless to say that smaller member states, as for example Flanders, and also public service media organizations themselves, doubt the efficiency and the costs of such a test on the one hand, and fear that it will ultimately lead to a restricted view on public service media on the other hand. I think that Richard Collins is right to question the translation of the original ideas of Mark Moore's public, managed public value management into the current public service media practice. Whereas the original idea of public value management was to render the public service organizations again accountable to their users as citizens rather than as consumers, its actual implementation combined with the market impact assessment tests runs the risk of being, as Collins argues, an externally imposed hurdle that management has to surmount rather than a doctrine encouraging and enabling engagement within institutions, users and publics. Ultimately, this leads to a ritual of verification rather than efficient regulation in the public interest. 
To summarize this tentative historical overview, I think it is fair to consider public service media, and more specifically the advent of public service programming, as never guaranteed in the past, the present, or the future. In other words, public service media and the means to implement them should at all times be considered indeed as a usual suspect whose dysfunctions must at all times be scrutinized and remedied. To guarantee the existence of public service media and the accomplishment of its mission therefore demands the reinforcement of an enlightened, comprehensive policy framework that ensures the institution's continuity without regarding it as sacrosanct. In conclusion, I see four measures that can be taken into uh, account in a complementary fashion. First, and this is tricky, eh? <laughs> I would plead for the creation of a public service fund with resources provided by the government and the private sector alike, such as true levies on advertising revenues, cable subscriptions, and so on. This fund would in turn finance two things. First and foremost, a public service media platform or network, thus cross-media, with a strong public service branding, subject to specifications and a review every five years. In a world of abundance, we need a benchmark platform that is free, universally accessible, and capable of offsetting at least three dysfunctions of the current media environment. First, offset the so-called news networks with an agenda, such as CNN. Secondly, offset the privatization of the audiovisual, in other words, the trend towards payment for audiovisual content, the rise of pay television networks and video-on-demand programs. And three, and this is then against the free movement, the corporatization of cultural vernacular production by actors as Google and YouTube. Contrary to the market failure theory, its content must not be confined to what the market does not offer, which could marginalize it. Its programs may be or should be generalist, but must at all times take a qualitative rather than a quantitative approach. This approach also presupposes that the political class is prepared to, to prepare to review and refine the system used to evaluate the performance of the public service platform. All too often, the powers that be evaluate public broadcasting on the basis of ratings and reach rather than its ability to serve the general interest. This in turn means the reintroduction of Moore's genuine public value management thinking. Additionally, the Public Service Fund foresees money for the production of public service programs, but of course this should not be at the, at the expense of the public service media platform, so no top slicing there. This fund would be accessible to all public and private actors, independent producers, cultural institutions, and so on. Public service programs and government assistance with their production would therefore be no longer the province of public networks alone, but could be found everywhere, conferring on them the greatest possible accessibility and the implementation of a truly universal service criterion. Secondly, I would plead for a more severe implementation of the regulatory framework to limit the influence of market forces. Obviously, it is not enough merely to finance public service programs. We must also ensure the existence of a legal framework that offsets the, the obsession with ratings. 
In particular, we must impose a statute protecting editorial freedom from unnatural pressure that exists in some countries, offset the risk of defamation and erroneous uh, information, risks that increase in the rat race for a scoop or ratings, continue to limit advertising time and control advertising content. Of course, these regulations exist, but their implementation quite often fails. Thirdly, I would plead in favor of a strong competition policy and reaffirm the existence therein of certain cultural considerations, cultural considerations that the member state doesn't want to evoke. And fourthly, there is a need for a set of accompanying measures since to create a public service era, we must not only create a supply of programs, but also create the demand and conditions for a quality service public, public service, especially through education of the public and media literacy initiatives. Public service media are furthermore perfectly suited to address digital divide challenges related to access, which is the old digital divide, and capabilities, which is the second uh, digital divide. Quality public media also implies considerable attention to the training and protection of journalists. To all this should undoubtedly be added an in-depth consideration of what public service media can be organized around in the 21st century. I see six core concepts, all starting with a C, in order to reposition public service media in the near future. All relate to slowing down instead of speeding up creating order and trust in a context of chaos and managing an abundance of choice. Too much choice can indeed, as Barry Schwartz argues in his book The Paradox of Choice, lead to attention deficit, increased disappointment and bad choices. Not really a nice future to think of. I think that the future of the public service model should become, for one, a conversation model. Public service media should indeed be permitted to embrace social media, but at the same time remain a trusted party or guide. Secondly, and of course, it should keep its focus on citizens and, competence and the competences and cap capability approach. It should address digital divides and uh, why not confer the idea of um, Graham Murdoch to see the public service media as a kind of social search engine which would look or identify really the trusted information. Thirdly, it should at all times enhance the credibility of the media system in its totality. It should be a point of reference and counterbalance the paradox of choice. Fourth, public service media should at all times serve creativity and innovation, and I see this on a software level, on the level of programs, and on the hardware levels. I think uh, that much more can be done at the level of uh, new and creative uh, applications. Last but not least, public service media should serve conservation objectives. It should secure a common cultural heritage and secure the national narratives. Local content remains important for sure and public service media have an important task here. In combination, I do believe that these five criteria can serve as a long-time life insurance for public service media. Although in the future, as in the past, we should remain cautious, as Bernal says, that the glory of the church does not supplant the religion. I thank you for your attention.
Caroline, thank you very much indeed. And if I can now ask um, Dr. David Tamini to come and act as respondent. Um, we're then going to take um, questions from the floor, and I just wanted to um, let you know while Damien is collecting his thoughts that there will be a reception after this um, event in half an hour um, on, the, on the fifth floor in the senior common room. So everyone is invited for a drink um, in half an hour. Um, but first, Damien is going to respond. Um, thank you, Caroline. Um, that was a really uh, impressive and majestic analysis of where public service broadcasting is in Europe, uh, almost all of which I, I agreed with. Uh, and it was also a very practical intervention in, in setting out some, uh, in the light of the analysis, some uh, prescriptions, some policy ideas, um, which we can engage with now. <clears throat> I have to say, I'm uh, doubly thankful because this is the second uh, talk on public service broadcasting policy that I've heard in the last five days. Um, and the first one threw me into an existential crisis. Um, uh, and you've re rescued me from that. And I'll, I'll explain why. Um, the talk in question last Friday was, was by Dennis McQuayle, some people in this room might know him as the person who invented and, and ran for many years uh, medium communication studies. Uh, <clears throat> and the thing which threw me into an existential crisis was him reflecting on the early years in which academics began to engage in, in, in policy and saying, looking back, I think I probably regret just how much energy we gave in the 1960s to protecting the public service monopoly arguing that this new thing, commercial broadcasting, um, was somehow uh, uh, necessarily a bad thing, breaking public service broadcasting monopoly. And the reason this made me think about this talk was partly because the, the subtlety of your analysis, you, you get beyond what, what I think often passes for analysis in academic uh, debate about public service broadcasting, which is a very um, uh, basic form of trench warfare, uh, which goes along the line of public always good, private always bad, um, and doesn't really get us anywhere. So I think in your talk, what we have is a, is a, 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 a far-reaching analysis. I like the ideas, institutions, um, uh, the 3i framework, uh, because the, the um, but, but, but I guess my point, my central point in response to your, your paper is that in the light of making that analysis, uh, in which you, you uh, show how ideas, uh, institutions uh, relate to one another. And uh, uh, I, I, th I think that in the light of that analysis, you might have come up with some slightly different prescriptions, and I'll, I'll explain why. I think maybe we might be risking uh, giving too much um, stress to ideas in this analysis. Um, I would just... To, to set out kind of slightly, some slightly different um, ideas, some slightly different frameworks, um, suggests that maybe there are different levels of this debate. And there is an internal debate about public service broadcasting, which is uh, where the ideas come in, in which you have discussions in your first phase about the public interest, about protecting the public interest, uh, and later development of ideas around market failure, public value, and so forth as justifications, um, the standard justifications of public service broadcasting. Um, 
But this standard defence of public service broadcasting, of course, is only part of the story. Um, and it may be, when I think, think about those debates and how they unfold, that actually what is happening is a, some kind of realpolitik. Um, and decisions are taken, and that level of discussion about public service broadcasting, market failures and so forth, is really a kind of post hoc legitimation strategy for public service broadcasting policy. Um, and you, you, you can see various examples of when um, people explore, people take very seriously, for example, market failure analysis, uh, and end up, uh, as Ofcom did five years ago, in saying, well, if public service broadcasting in part is justified uh, by public good arguments, and a part of a public good argument is uh, that broadcasting as a good is not non-excludable, um, then it seems uh, obvious that uh, encryption and uh, various forms of conditional access make uh, excludability possible, and therefore uh, the public good argument for public service broadcasting is weakening. So these kind of, this level of justifications and, and the discourse about public service broadcasting, I think, is... is um, uh, in some ways, I think it's, it's, it's interesting, it's part of where the debate is, but ultimately I think decisions and the, the, the interests um, uh, level is much, much more important. You have this level of realpolitik, um, uh, and I think that, that um, uh, maybe your interests level should be given some, some more, uh, more weight in the analysis. But of course, as you also point out, there is also a kind of a emerging institutional in the broad sense, uh, the uh, level. Uh, if you think about how uh, in the Amsterdam Protocol and uh, even the uh, European Convention on Human Rights, Article 10, how the broader legal, structural, institutionalized framework for public service broadcasting has evolved over the past 20 years and if you like, is, is emerging into a kind of a, a more uh, constitutional framework for public service broadcasting around Europe, including competition law, state aid rules, and how they're applied to public service broadcasters, have, have set out something of a more permanent uh, structure for public service broadcasters um, in Europe. And yet, and this, I, I guess I, I come to my, my, my central point, your, your point is that there is, this is a social choice for society, whether to continue to evolve, whether to have uh, public provision in the space, or whether to leave it to the market. Um, and uh, in your conclusions, you set out some policy prescriptions at the level of, of, of ideas in a number of different areas. Um, and I wonder if uh, we might like to bring the kind of realpolitik into, back into the picture. Um, I mean, and before I, before I say how, just a, a couple of um, uh, observations. I mean, one, one thing which I guess I would disagree with in the analysis is, is that you, you have a two-part distinction between state and market. And I would say that, that in bracketing the BBC along with CCTV, we miss what I think is the, some of the essential features of public service broadcasting in terms of independence of the public service broadcaster from the state. Um, and I think insofar as um, we need a lot more um, uh, creative thinking about public service broadcasting, I think that relationship of independence 
is the eternal challenge for public service broadcasters, and we need a lot of creative thinking about how to, uh, without just um, market uh, prioritising market mechanisms, um, ensure that public accountability to Parliament, um, uh, but also to the public, um, uh, would be uh, would be done. And uh, my uh, my my proposal. Um, to quite a cheesy phrase which is going to make everybody wince is that you know, in, in, the Britain, in Britain the big society needs to claim back the BBC you know, it's about civil society um, uh, uh, improving accountability um, so realpolitik I think where we are now with the debate about public service broadcasting is that we're in for the mother of all battles um, for reasons which you point out uh, never before have public service broadcasters been competing so directly with newspaper publishers um, and competing in a way which, uh, at a moment when newspaper publishers are fighting for their very existence um, and arguing that they provide public service in the form of quality journalism. Uh, so the battle between free, in the form of the BBC's online services, but also the Guardian, and paid and the subscription model for, for, for newspapers is is, I think, going to define the next five years, and it's going to be very, uh, very uh, uh, bloody, and it's going to involve a huge amount of very powerful lobbying power being exerted on governments. So, um, in the light of that, and in the light of my earlier point about accountability, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd say I agree with the prescriptions. Um, I think the, well, the, your, your proposal for something like a public service publisher which was advanced in 2005 by Ofcom, and, and um, I'd be interested to see how your proposal differs from that, um, I think is, is probably a good one. I think there is a set of, set of questions about what's politically possible, um, but I think I, I agree we should be advancing those kinds of um, uh, ideas, because if we don't, who will? Um, but I think we need also to think strategically in terms of your analysis um, around some of the key questions. You're absolutely right to think about the competition framework because I think if we, if we think historically um, what emerges as a policy framework is really as a series of, of accidents. It's not that, what was your quote, the philosopher is uh, in charge. Um, it is not, it, 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 where we get to is, a, is nobody is taking that, that. There is never that moment of social choice in which a policy framework is designed, which is good for the whole of Europe, and which, is, which, is, which is, uh, deals with all of these issues. I think you're absolutely right to set it out. But um, the, the decisions will be taken piecemeal, and the framework we end up with uh, will be uh, a, a, a series of, the, the result of a series of historical accidents. The key issue of that unstable relationship between public service uh, and services which are like public service, which are provided commercially, I think is, is, is very unstable. And I think that the three-step test and the public value test are an unsatisfactory way of resolving them. And I think that that, that, that that for me is the key issue uh, and it's the one that we need to resolve. It's very uh, kind of, uh, it's not the kind of issue that goes very high up uh, government's agendas and it's not the kind of issue which um, uh, motivates widespread political debate or voting intentions. Uh, but I think it will be the issue which defines uh, the broad balance between public and commercial provision in communications.
Well, um, very many things to think about, um, and um, I don't know, Caroline, if you would like to start by um, answering Damien, or if you'd like to hear the kinds of questions from that. Okay, <laughs> and then you can, you can have a final word. Um, questions, thoughts, um, please, yeah. Hi, um, thank you very much for a fa fascinating um, talk, I really enjoyed that. Um, I just I wanted to pick up on um, it's it's sort of relates to something that Damien said talking about the independence of the broadcaster and I would like to add also the independence of the regulator who <laughs> um, regulates that with uh, um, it's uh, also very important but um, you uh, set up a model whereby uh, the public service broadcasters were either um, over paternalistic and politicised or they were being sort of dragged onto the market orientation, but do you, do you not think there was, in some cases, in some member states, um, uh, a period at all where neither of those were true? I mean, I'm, I'm probably terribly nostalgic about the BBC in the 70s or something, but you know, I, I, I've always sort of assumed that there was a mecca. Maybe it only lasted for a couple of years or something, but um, I was just wondering, so because, I, you know, that, that idea of there never having been any independence um, of the public broadcaster, I find a little challenging. Thanks. This should probably bend up. Yeah. Yes, of course. I I think to to really check your your statement, we we really need more more evidence because if I look at historical studies being done in, 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 in Flanders of, of, or, or in other countries as the Netherlands. I, I don't know for the UK situation uh, because you have to know them all. And in fact, there is not enough historical study on, on what has been done in, in, in the past and what is done now. What are the differences? But um, I think we could not eh, uh, also build a, a policy on the impression of a time where everything was perhaps <laughs> in our eyes uh, good. I think, I really think that, that uh, for me it's, it's very good to always see an institution which we give a lot of money and, and rightly so, uh, that we are always considering it as what I said a usual suspect because it's very easy to uh, use the money that uh, people receive in not an accountable uh, way. And uh, sitting on, on, on the uh, Flemish, on the council of the, of the Flemish uh, public service broadcaster, I'm always very surprised about uh, sometimes the lack of uh, public ethos of uh, people working there. This is not to say that this is generally so. I think I, at the same time I meet a lot of people who really are very uh, committed towards the public service broadcasters. But I think for the moment we have a situation where people working there don't have this public ethos anymore. And that, this is where I agree about the importance of ideas and the importance also of being educated in kind of context that was once a public service ethos. And I think it is uh, very important. And looking at, at the Flemish experience we only had recently, 
uh, a kind of uh, battle and, and it really went public that uh, the public service broadcasting was actually uh, airing a, a program which would be around the favorite dish of Hitler. And it was a kind of uh, very popular uh, program. It's uh, as all restaurant and <laughs> culinary uh, programs, very popular on, <laughs> on, the, on television. And in fact, I was surprised, and I was also talking to the students, that nobody thought it was a problem that Hitler would be uh, somebody who liked eating, and it was very uh, normal, and, and there was no discussion at all. Also, in the public broadcast institution, they were just surprised that uh, society couldn't take this program. So for me, it's more, uh, and that's why ideas are important. I, I miss the discussion on the vision and on the ideas that should be around public service broadcast. And perhaps this is, for me, so worse than sometimes a realpolitik. Real I think the, uh, the realpolitik is our way out of these kind of difficult uh, things we should be able to discuss at, at some time. So uh, probably you're right. I'm sure you you had a, a moment where you said, yes, this is really good. Uh, and I like this, and I'm willing to pay more for that kind of things. But um, looking at the ethos in, in the institution and also the programs that are aired, I think we should at all times be very cautious and talk about it uh, all the time. Jacques. Thank you, that was a wonderful presentation. You said at the beginning that we should avoid dichotomies and binaries, and I, I liked that, but I kind of felt that there was a gap between the public-private, which you didn't quite fill, and perhaps for me that is um, community radio and community channels on television. Mm -hmm. You don't seem to have laid out any role for them in this future, mm -hmm. whether it's an accidental future or it's a considered and um, legal framework future. Do you see any role or do you think that there is a role for citizens, media, who might want to challenge both the state and public-private broadcasters? Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I do so, really. I, I, I think that the advantage of the upcoming era is that we can have more of everything, also these kind of initiatives, even though they will always have a hard time to be, uh, to be recognized in this era of abundance. But I, I really also see a lot of opportunities in this era of, of abundance. So I really see also that there you have initiatives that are very worthwhile. Uh, I think that also, and this is perhaps <laughs> something else, but still uh, it is interesting, on Facebook you have these kind of, of movements also, so these are perhaps some, in fact I do not, I do not like Facebook, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it, it is, there, there are some interesting things on Facebook going on and, and I think this is also a community trying to express itself and who could have actually some influence. So these different sources that surround and keep also a public service institution awake, I think it's really a, a question of being, uh, of scrutinizing what is happening in society and it will not always come from the private sector or, but it will for sure come from, from the community as well. I, I said that I don't like the, the, the wisdom of the crowds metaphor. Sometimes I like the wisdom of the community more. Uh, so it's, it's, it, these, these, these kind of ideas I think we should explore and indeed it's about a complementary way of, of uh, developing, I think. Yeah? So I wouldn't neglect them at all. 
Um, okay, several questions now, so I'll take um, Bing Chung, Meng, yeah, and then two at the back. Um, my question has to do with your last proposition about um, conservation. Um, I'm wondering that I think in today's um, world, not only national broadcasters, they sometimes are addressing audience beyond national boundaries, but also within the national boundaries, they're increasing cultural social stratification and also with migration diaspora groups. So it's also increasingly difficult to talk about national narratives. I wonder if you see this proposition as having any attention with this, or do you still see um, public service broadcasting as essentially a nationalistic project? No, you're, you're right to point that out. For me, and coming from a country as Flanders, where <laughs> for the moment we have a <laughs> kind of a movement which is very into a national regionalist uh, discourse, a very populist uh, discourse as, as well. Uh, for me, the national is really covering up for the diversity also of the national. In, in, in Belgium, this would mean <laughs> looking at Bart because I know he, I, I'm sure he thinks more or less the same that to some extent, I, I am ashamed that the national only covers something that an elite perhaps says to be the national. For me, the national is diverse in all its constitutions. Flanders, Belgium has always been a very differentiated national project. But now we try to reduce it to something that people say this is our national identity. So uh, for me, the national is really not about one national, very coherent or homogeneous identity. This is really, for me, the opposite. Um, so, yeah, I, I, so I'm really, I really agree with with your point. So, for me, the nation is not only one identity, for sure. <laughs> there, um, yeah. Hi. Uh, I've been wondering about um, something which has been posed now, about the independence in the case of public broadcasting. Because I come from Latin America, where at the beginning, television tried to follow the European model of public broadcasting. However, the lack of independence of the state and governments uh, made it fail, and now we've been moving towards a more commercial system. So it seems that societies with imperfect institutions or imperfect democracies cannot have a public broadcast broadcasting system, while it could be argued that precisely that kind of societies are the ones which need most this mm -hmm. kind of system. So I'd like to hear you about it, mm -hmm. if it's possible to, to have this system in these imperfect democracies. Mm -hmm. For one, I don't think that uh, in Europe we have a perfect democracy, even there would be a, a gradation in, in imperfectness of, of uh, democracies. Um, it is always about being cautious about good ideas being implemented somewhere. and. In fact, at that moment, the power game starts. Who, who has the, the ownership of the good idea and who will implement the idea? And in fact, you see when you import a model that perhaps works to some extent and with a lot of deficiencies uh, or dysfunctions here, if you export it to a country as, as yours, I can imagine that it comes into a kind of uh, <laughs> game uh, with everybody struggling for getting grip, but it's the same here. Uh, you, were, you were talking also about the independent uh, regulators. Of course, the independent regulators are only independent because they have this adjective <laughs> uh, in front of their uh, authority. But 
they are not independent. They, 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 um, they serve interests and they need to serve interests that um, they, uh, they should be replaced from time to time. I think that you should, we should have a kind of, even if you, if you need competence and you need uh, uh, people really knowing the sector, knowing the, the companies working in the sector and so on, but you need to have a, a, a fresh, independent authority all the time because uh, we are much intertwined with, with the, uh, many things. So, um, I don't think that, that the West should serve as an example to other countries. I, I don't think we can really uh, um, be proud of what we have done so far. I, I think there's still a, a lot of things to, to be, be done. Um, so what goes for your country for sure goes for mine, for example. I think we should be very cautious about the models we implement and uh, the regulators we have and uh, the institutions we have. That's what I said. It's always suspect, in my opinion. It's not a complot thinking. That's not uh, the case. But I think it's, it's very easy. When you are in an institution, that you get to like the institution. You want to fight for the institution, be it an, an independent regulator. You want to legitimize yourself and the institution. So it's a kind of vicious circle where, which we always are victim of between uh, brackets and it's a kind of self-reflection or self-reflectivity I think that is important and should be imposed also in the process. Can I, can I just yeah. push you a bit harder on, on some of your proposals? You're, say, you're, you're saying that um, public service broadcasters should not chase ratings anymore and yet they should not be, um, so they should not do what commercial broadcasters would do. They should not um, uh, just be niche market failure um, uh, repairing um, uh, bodies that just do things that the market would fail to do. Um, and in your analysis, in your, in your prescription of, of public service uh, uh, provider, mm -hmm. let's call it, um, you, this, this body should fund content, mm -hmm. um, yet you're not wholly confident people will watch it. You think people need to be educated uh, to watch it, because uh, otherwise they they might fail to deliver the necessary audience, which you know that's that's taking paternalism another step uh, further. And I, so I, I guess in the background I have this question about whether you're whether you're being radical enough. Uh, and going back to the you know whether whether in 40 years when you're giving the Dennis McQuayle lecture, um, looking yeah, back great. on <laughs> looking back on 50 years in the field, you know, you'll say, well, maybe in the 2010s um, we, we spent a bit too much time um, trying to maintain the old public service model in a situation in which the audience simply had too much too much choice. And isn't there always going to be that dilemma of, of uh, if uh, the audience, in a situation of abundance, chooses a piece of content, advertising will support that piece of content in some form, or the market will support that piece of content. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to that? First, I don't think that uh, public service broadcasting should never consider ratings. Uh, for me, it's really a, a mixed model. Sometimes you need to have ratings. You have to have a huge reach, uh, be it that, that it is a universal service. But I think that, that the standards of your program can be quite high and that you should be uh, 
really careful about the standards you respond to. So this is so ratings for me are not bad per se. It's the rat race for ratings that are bad in mm -hmm. as such. Mm -hmm. So I think I think we as as in academia we want students to be in our classes to some extent I think, and uh, we want our books to be read. The same is for people working in an institution. That's you want why we put another reading lists mm -hmm. to, to force people to read them. <laughs> can't do that. Doesn't work. <laughs> I really believe in in the um, and this is perhaps also real politic that you need uh, the education of the demand. That that's true, and that we need a, a long term. Uh, and this is what we do here, and this is what we do uh, with the public service uh, broadcaster. We we are in an educational logic to some extent. We are not only in an educational logic, but we are in this. That, that's the reason why they are there. So uh, I would never uh, drop, uh, and is this uh, the risk of paternalism? Yes. I find it very sad that at a certain moment we have lost the aim of education, because I, I think if, if we take the idea of ratings also to, for example, universities, there wouldn't be a lot of thinking anymore because we would be very uh, also in line. I know that we're, um, we're, we're getting short of time and there are two people who've been very patient, so I'm going to mm -hmm. ask them, uh, Maria Michaelis there and at the back, and then maybe you would give mm -hmm. us a final word. So. Um, yes. Thanks, Caroline. I really enjoyed your presentation. Um, it's a question about regulatory frameworks, and I want to pick on a point that Damian made, and it's a question for both. Uh, Damian said that the public value and the market impact assessment framework is not a satisfactory one. Uh, Caroline, do you agree with this? Mm -hmm. I assume that perhaps yes, based on the conclusions and suggestions mm -hmm. you presented, but please say a bit more on this. And then Damian. What's the alternative? Do you have any ideas, suggestions from a real politic perspective? Thank you. I will take, yeah. uh, in terms of the justification strategies uh, employed by the various academic spheres uh, in the various language spheres of Europe alone, I, I'm not going now uh, onto Far East or South America or North America. Um, there is, of course, the fundamental problem of exclusion, which usually does not touch sufficiently academic analysis. Uh, to my mind, even uh, uh, with some uh, noticeable uh, British exceptions, um, efforts which were undertaken by, say, for instance, the political agenda of the attempt to solve the paradox in Italy when they tried to bring about uh, the, the good society in a, a combination between the Communist Party of Italy at that time in the 70s quite strong still, uh, also with a very fundamental, uh, 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 very, very aggressive uh, 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 extremist wing. Uh, on the one side, and the Catholic Church. Um, so at that point, there was the, the, the question of which public service schools were operating in the various European uh, language fields. 
Now, uh, this escaped completely uh, the, the attention of the ac academic sphere, uh, either in Germany or in, in Britain, which is very interesting. And the Italians, in the end, they <coughs> reduced this uh, line of thought to a couple of philosophers. Uh, uh, with I am pleading that uh, all dichotomous models of market on the one side state agendas uh, on the other, government agendas on the others, uh, are insufficient because they are, uh, the fundamental opposition, the extreme, the violent uh, opposition uh, of the excluded, uh, uh, which also has a voice, is basically uh, uh, sufficiently under-researched. I give, to conclude, to uh, conclude about uh, a couple of uh, examples which come to my head. Uh, when the communist parties, uh, at a time when Lenin still was alive, so there was no Stalinism uh, problem, and there was uh, still a chance to uh, somehow relate to uh, Trotskyist uh, concepts of media uh, development. At that time, there were some films even made. Okay, there were only documentaries. <coughs> Actually, not only. There were also fiction films. Uh, if you analyze these early oppositional, fundamental opposition films and compare them to fundamental opposition all through history since then, including, for instance, the attempts by the Taliban to make their media <coughs> kind of heard, which may be by, by now is a ridiculous situation because they have to run with tapes to uh, obs obscure uh, delivery uh, platforms when you then hear vaguely uh, by, by uh, the odd uh, Guardian journalist that there was a program, of course, which you have missed I'm, as I'm, an I'm academic. Going to, I'm going to so cut you off words, if I may. Make um, your research, your yeah. academics, make your research more thorough to avoid exclusions of the exploited and okay, underrepresented. So there, are, so there are two speakers who are going to respond, I think, to um, two very different kinds of questions. Um, I, Damien is... I, um, Champing at the bit. Yes. I will endeavour to make my research more thorough, uh, and, and particularly your, your key point, which is um, avoid binary oppositions between the market on the one hand and the state. And I think that the, the, the point I was trying to make is that it's extremely important when we when we uh, analyse broadcasting uh, in particular that there, that there are there are three uh, ways, and you could add community broadcasting mm -hmm. uh, as well, um, and and. In, in developing that public um, uh, model and updating the, the uh, structures of accountability to deal with all of the, the, um, the, the new functions of public service media that you're proposing, I think is, is quite a challenge, mm -hmm. um, but quite, a, quite an interesting one. Um, the uh, public value test and the market impact assessment is uh, unsatisfactory. Um, uh, on the one hand, uh, Private um, uh, broadcasters criticise it uh, for being ultimately just very subjective, uh, kind of a finger in the wind. Um, here are some indicators, and you know we think uh, on balance uh, there's some public value in this. And it's uh, it's difficult to construct legitimacy around the decisions which are made. Um, uh, and uh, I think. The same is true to, to a slightly lesser extent of market impact assessments. Um, uh, and, and I think the result of that is there's, a, there's an instability in that relationship. And there's a, you, know, you, don't, you don't really resolve the problem of uh, uh, 
private investment in, in public service like content being slightly chilled um, and uh, uh, uncertainty around, around what public service broadcasters do. So it's, uh, and, and I think that what you see, is particularly in smaller states, is extremely expensive, extremely cumbersome, and it acts as a real kind of chilling effect. You get log jams within the public broadcasters. They want to launch, launch new services and they can't because they can't get the, the public value tests through. So it's unsatisfactory. However, it's the best we've got. Um, so I don't want to say anything to further delegitimize it. Um, and I, I mean, I, I guess, um, you know, the, the final point I would, I'd, I'd, I'd make really, I mean, I think the questions have been really excellent, is that, um, uh, you know, I, I think you've done a really brilliant job in terms of setting out some, some productive uh, uh, avenues, and, and I hope that we at LSE can do some more work uh, to uh, think further about these things. Okay. Caroline. That's a great final point. <laughs> no, 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 final words for you. Okay. Uh, to respond to, to Maria, um, I think, for one, it is good to have more evidence-based policy. As far as the market impact assessment test, as well as the public value, we should think about, we should dialogue about these kind of tests. So this is good per se, but you also see in the market impact assessment that we lack a lot of material to do good market impact assessment tests. And time after time, the Court of Justice asked the European Commission to come back to its analysis because they say that the analysis is not done well enough. So I think that just proves that we are not far enough yet. Uh, so it, and this is our task uh, to, to provide evidence and, and to continue the research. Furthermore, I think that the public value test, okay, you know it better here in the UK and in Flanders people are very scared about having the first uh, uh, public value and market impact assessment test, but I think when you will have it enrolled in different countries that it will also be important there, I come back to the point raised by the lady here on, on the front, that it's also important to involve communities or, or, or the public or the civil society and this is not what we have seen so far, they are asked to uh, respond to things, but in fact there are no uh, channels where they can really uh, channel their opinions, and, and this is something we also have to think of. So if we have a public value test, it is not enough that the Board of Governors does it, uh, even if they ask for input from other parties, I think we should just get organized that also other people uh, uh, channel their, their views. So I think these are instruments they will be uh, to some extent problematic, but it's in fact the, uh, the task of academia, and this is perhaps what we can talk about uh, later on, to enhance these kind of, of instruments. So it's just for me uh, the beginning, and I think we can come up with something better than that. But I think it's also important to think about the monitoring of public value. Why do I think it is important to have um, conservation because I think it is important that a, a, a country or region or, or communities recall about the past for the future generation because for me public service media is really about a responsibility you have to the future society not it's a daily responsibility and this is I think also and that is this is why I like this enlightenment project and I think we as universities can never leave it aside. It is an enlightenment project, I think, and we are not at the end of this project. So this would be my last point. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you.
So um, I don't think there's um, time for my question about um, conversation as a new um, core value for um, PSM, but uh, it's also um, a core task for academics and students, of course. So um, I do now invite you to continue the conversation on the fifth floor upstairs in this building um, where we can be more informal. Um, but now I'd like formally to thank you for your questions and your attendance this evening and to thank both our speakers very much for their words.